if I were to ask you, what's your story? That'd be a really interesting question, right? Everybody likes to tell their story. Everybody likes to tell, tell where they came from, how they got to where they are. What's your story? Usually when, when someone tells their story, if uh, wherever they are in life, you're, you're going to start to peel back the layers. You're going to start to get a glimpse of uh, their origins, their roots. But I think this morning, not just what's your story, but we should ask the question, what is our story as humanity? What is our story? Because when we begin to answer that, that question, perhaps we can answer the question, what is so broken with the world? As we start peeling back the layers, as we start uh, telling the story, perhaps we can start to see what is, is wrong with the world. And our story, according to Scripture, begins with pride and rebellion. It begins with pride. It begins with God putting His newly created people into a perfect garden where they could walk with Him face to face. But the story is that they rebelled. They ignored God. They disobeyed what He said. They said, God, we think that our way is best. We think You're holding out on us. We don't really think You're as good as You say that You are. And so when you start to look at humanity's story, you start to, to realize that the problem in the world is not something that is outside of us, but the problem in the world is actually us. Right? The problem in the world is not something outside. It's something inside. It's, it, it's us. We are the problem. Why is Washington so corrupt? Because people are there. Why do marriages fall apart? Because people are in them. Why do bad neighborhoods exist? Because there are people in them. The problem is not something outside of us. The problem is us. It is the brokenness, the sinfulness of people who just like the very first man and woman decided that we want our own way and we want to rebel against God. And so when we think about our brokenness, when we think about our emptiness, the problem is us. The problem is inside. And so therefore, listen, the solution if the problem is within, the solution cannot be something outside. And this is a message of hope that the world needs. That the, the hope that we have, the, the way to fix, the way to remedy the brokenness is not some outside fix, but it's God doing something from within. In Genesis chapter 3, right after mankind decides to go its own way, God is cursing the serpent that led them astray. And in, in chapter 3, verse 15, these remarkable words are spoken by God to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
But you say, well, why is that so important? Because even at the beginning of the story, God is putting forth a remedy. Even at the beginning, God is saying, I'm not going to let the world go its own way. I'm not going to let people stay broken forever. I will send the fix. I will send the one who is going to crush the enemy's head. And I will send the one who is going to fix the problem of sin and brokenness. And so now the question that is asked, that is proposed by this verse is, who is going to do this? He says it's the descendant of the woman. Her offspring is going to crush the head. So who is that? And that's the question we're going to answer this morning. Who will crush the head of the serpent? And what we're going to see in answering that question as we trace this throughout the Old Testament, we're going to see that we have hope because God is faithful to keep His promises. We have hope because God is faithful to keep His promises. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to Your Word this morning, I pray, Lord, that we would be filled with the hope that You give us, knowing that You who started in the beginning of the story promising hope ultimately made good on the promise. Even, Lord, when it seemed that the promise would fail, even when it seemed like You had forgotten the promise, Lord, You would come through miraculously in a way that only You could. Help us to see this morning with eyes of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the question of the hour, who will crush the head of the serpent? As we're going through the story, the very first person that comes to mind, that comes up several chapters later, is a man by the name of Abram, who would later be called Abraham. Now, something very interesting happens to, to Abraham. God calls him to get up from his home and go somewhere far away. In Genesis chapter 12, if you can turn there and read along, it'll also be on the screen. In Genesis 12, God speaks to Abram. And this is what it says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this guy named Abraham comes into the story. God promises that he is going to make Abraham's descendants great. And the reason why is because God is making them great so that they can bless the world. And so as, as readers, we look at that and we say, you know, maybe this is the guy. God's going to bless his descendants and, and that's going to be the way that God remedies the world. That's going to be the way that God undoes the curse. In fact, in Genesis 15, a couple of chapters later, God tells Abram that that promise will come through Abram's son, Isaac. 
And it seems that this word to Abraham is fulfilled through his descendants. Isaac eventually has children, they have children, and before you know it, the descendants of Abraham truly are innumerable. The people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. I mean, it really looks like these people are going to be the ones. At first, Israel seems to fulfill this promise to Abraham. At first, they seem to be God's people who are going to bless the world. I mean, God gives them a land These people who have nothing, who were in bondage, march across the Jordan into a land and conquer it. I mean, it really seems like God's hand is on these people. These are the ones who are going to turn the world back right. But Israel eventually rebels. I say eventually, really they rebelled from the beginning. They turn to other gods and eventually God rejects them. And he lets other nations come in and overthrow them. But, did God's promise to Abraham fail? Ultimately, his promise to Abraham would be fulfilled. Because right at the time when it seemed like Abraham's descendants were not going to do anything, Right at the time when it seemed like Abraham's descendants were not going to reverse the curse. Right when it seems like there's nothing more that they can do. At that very moment, a descendant of Abraham is born. Jesus Christ. And this offspring of Abraham, unlike Israel, was completely faithful to what God called him to. Unlike Israel that was constantly disobeying and was constantly seeking other gods, Christ, the true descendant of Abraham, truly was faithful. And listen, the words of Genesis 12 echo true in Him. God promises that Abraham's descendant will bring blessing to the world. And one day, listen, that was fulfilled. Christ came. And only through Him can the nations truly be blessed. Through Jesus, the entire world is being reconciled back to God. Jesus is the true and better Abraham. When I was in college, I started seeing this girl who would one day become my wife. And I was pretty fond of her. I kind of liked her a lot. And we decided that, you know, we were going to get married. And so we did what every in-love couple does. We go ring shopping, right? And, and fellas, I'm just going to give you, some of you younger guys, I'm just going to give you some advice. Let, let, let your significant other pick the ring because it just works so much better that way. So we're there and she's saying, you know, I like this one and I like this one and I like this one. And I'm over there taking notes, scribbling things down. But I've noticed something. The ones that she's picking are a little bit beyond what I can afford at the time. So, I did what any boyfriend would do. I went to the jeweler and I applied for credit. 
At this point in my life, I had never borrowed any money and never, didn't even have a credit card, had nothing, no credit whatsoever. And so I remember the, the jeweler came back to me and said, well, sir, Mr. Warren, we can offer you some credit. Oh, good, good. How much is it? Is it going to cover the ring? He said, well, we can offer you 300 bucks. And my heart sank. The problem, of course, was they didn't trust me. For good reason, right? I mean, here's this 19, 20-year-old kid hasn't experienced much of life and he's coming in trying to borrow money. And, and what do banks look at when, when someone comes and tries to borrow? There's really only one question that they care to answer. Is this person trustworthy to pay back the money that they borrow? That's, that's what it boils down to. That's it. And so... The problem was no one would lend me any money because I had no credit. And of course, you can't build credit if no one will loan you any money. No one trusted me to make good on the promise to repay because there was no evidence, listen, no history that I would come through. As we stand here looking trying to answer that question, who is going to crush the head of the serpent? As we stand here wondering, is God going to make good? Listen, we see this morning is that we can trust God because God does not, is not a, a young guy who doesn't have a history of making good on His promises. What we're seeing is that God from the very beginning makes promises that thousands of years later, He fulfills. We can trust Him. We can trust Him. When God makes a promise, it's as good as done. So, after Abraham, God raises up another leader, Moses, to rescue His people from bondage and bring the people back to God. Could this be? Could this be the one? That's going to crush the serpent's head. Of course, we know the story of Moses. We know that Moses, with mighty, displaying mighty acts from God, led the people out of captivity. But something is said <clears throat> to Moses in Deuteronomy 18. That is truly remarkable. Right when you start thinking, maybe this is the guy, God speaks to Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, and He says this, and Moses is recounting what, what He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like Me. This is Moses speaking to the people, okay? Moses says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like Me from among you, from your brothers. It is to Him you shall listen just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire and more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are, they are right in what they have spoken. And then this is what he says, verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. God is saying to His people, I'm going to raise up a prophet who is like Moses. I'm going to raise up a prophet 
who will know me face to face and will speak my word to the people in power. Now, fast forward to the end of Deuteronomy, to the end of Moses' story, and something truly remarkable is stated about his death. In Deuteronomy 34, at the very end, Moses has died. We're expecting at any moment God to raise up the prophet who is going to be the better Moses. The prophet who is going to come and hopefully undo the problem and undo the curse. Deuteronomy 34, starting in verse 7, this is what it says. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed, his vigor unabated, and the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. He's dead. He's gone. Notice what it says next. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the Spirit. This is the guy, right? This is the guy. This is the guy that's coming after him. Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. This is him. Until you get to verse 10. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. Listen, this is what it's saying. Saying Joshua, the the successor of Moses, he was great. He was filled with, with the spirit of wisdom. But it's very clear, he's not the prophet that's coming after Moses. He's not the prophet. Unlike Moses, he did not know the Lord face to face like Moses did. He did not go into the tent of meeting and talk to God like we talk to each other. He did not do the powerful signs and wonders in Egypt like Moses did. And so we don't know when the end part of Deuteronomy is written. We just know it's written later on after the death of Moses. And whenever it's written, the author is saying, hey, this guy who's better than Moses has not came yet. We don't have anybody to speak to us from God like Moses. And it seems that this is fulfilled in the prophets that would come after, right? Prophets like Isaiah, prophets like Jeremiah, the minor prophets. It seems like these guys, they're coming and they're saying, hey, this is what God says. But, at the very end, there comes a time where the prophets stop talking. For 400 years, God is silent. At the end of the Old Testament, God's people are still looking for that person to come along. Who is the true and better Moses? The true fulfillment came, was born in a manger. Jesus is a prophet who would know God face to face as a son. Jesus is a prophet who would do great signs and wonders, even more so than Moses. 
Moses would speak to the people on behalf of God and say, this is what God says. Jesus would come along and not just tell us, hey, this is what God says. Jesus comes along and says, let me bring you into a relationship with this God. Jesus comes, and according to John 1, 17 and 18, it says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. No one has ever seen God at any time. But the only God who is at the Father's side, talking about Jesus, He has made Him known. The idea here, church, is in the history of our story. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever talked to God directly. And now we have the true and better prophet who has come, who's saying, I'm not just going to tell you what God says. I'm not just going to tell you what God is like. I'm going to bring you into a relationship with Him. I'm not just going to do it indirectly, but I'm going to connect you directly to the Father. And I know some of you right now in this place, you may be dry. Some of you in this place, you may be feeling like, man, I'm so dry, I really wish somebody like Moses could come to me and tell me, hey, this is what God's thinking. I feel so distant from God. I need somebody to just tell me what God is up to. What He says, what He thinks about me. And listen, we don't need somebody like Moses to come and tell us what God thinks. We don't need us to come and say, this is a word from God. Listen, church, what we need is we need to realize that Jesus is the true and better Moses That Jesus comes in our dryness, in our distance from God, and He comes and He says, let me bring you near. I'm not just going to tell you what He says, I'm going to show you what He's like, and I'm going to bring you into a relationship with Him. Jesus is the true and better Moses. And the question today, do you want to know God? Do you want to know God today? We have to look no further than Jesus to know Him. We have to look to Christ. He is the one who reconciles us to the Father. He is the one who speaks to us from God. And He is the one who restores that broken relationship with God. So after Moses, God raises up several people, but one in particular is he raises up a king, David. David is described, and we know that he had many failures. He was described as a man after God's own heart. Would this be the one who's going to crush the serpent's head? Would this be the one who's going to come in and fix the problem from within? David, in all of his failures and all of his successes, has God come to him one day and speak this, this prophecy and promise something greater? In 2 Samuel 7, this is what God says to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled, so David, when your days are fulfilled, when you're dead, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come, from, come up from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. He promises King David, after you're gone, I'm going to raise up your descendants and they are going to be great kings. Your throne's never going to end. When the kings mess up that come after you, and trust me, they do, I'm going to forgive them. And so it seems that God is fulfilling this. After David comes Solomon, the wisest king. And we think, this is the one. I mean, God promised David that He's going to take your offspring. He's going to make him great. His kingdom is going to last forever. He's going to be the one that could undo the fall. And then Solomon comes with so much wisdom. And we think, this is it. This is the king. And then he dies an idolater. He dies not worshiping the true God. And basically sets the tone for all the people who come after him. Just read the, book, the books First and Second Kings and you'll, you'll realize all the kings, there's a lot of, uh, out of all the kings, most of them were bad. There were a lot of bad ones. There were a few good ones. But the moral of the story is eventually they all died. Eventually, we can get to the end of, of 2 Kings and we see in 2 Kings 25 that the kingly line of David ends. It's over. All of David's descendants are gone. There is no more king. There is no more line. And then we see that the promise, even though it seems to fail, it is fulfilled when Jesus, the descendant of David, comes as the true king. In Matthew chapter 1, he records his genealogy. Let's be honest, that's the part we skip. Right? When we read the Christmas story to our kids, we skip that part, don't we? We don't like the genealogies. We don't like to pronounce those names. I don't like to read them. I don't like to pronounce those names. But what the genealogy tells us is that Jesus is descended from David. And ultimately, this king who would come to rule his people, the true and better David, the true and better king, would reign from a cross. This king would give his life to save his people. And we start to see that the curse at the beginning of our story is ultimately undone, not by Abraham, not by his descendants Israel. It's not undone by Moses. It's not undone by the prophets that came after him. It's not undone by David. It's not undone by Solomon. It's not undone by any of the kings that come after. But it's undone by Jesus. And it's undone 
because he bled and died for us. We are sinners. We are rebellious against God. And what Jesus does is he dies in our place. He suffers the penalty that we deserve. And when we trust him, when we surrender to him, we find that we are forgiven and we find that we are made new. We find that the curse is undone. We find that our story breaks from the story of humanity and starts new. The king will one day return and he will establish perfect peace and justice. And our only hope is allegiance to this king. As we celebrate the hope that we have, we realize that we are coming to a king. No leader is going to fix the problems like this king will. Doesn't matter who the president is, doesn't matter who the governor is, it doesn't matter who the mayor is. No leader will fix our problems like this king will. Because every human leader that we have is just as corrupt and just as sinful as we are. And our ultimate allegiance is to this king. Is to this true king. It's not to anything else. And that's helpful to be reminded of in this season. Our allegiance is to King Jesus and not to any human political party. Some of us are so caught up in what's going on in politics that our allegiance becomes to political figures instead of to our king. Our conversation becomes centered on that. Our thoughts become centered on that. And we live our lives completely wrapped up in these political parties, in these political figures. And I'm not saying that they're bad. I'm saying that our allegiance is to one higher than that. We need to spend less time watching the news channels, watching Fox News, if I can be so bold, and spend more time pursuing Christ. He is our King. We need to spend less time telling others about the glories of a certain political party and spend more time telling others about the glories of our true King. Because listen, it does not matter how well the Republican Party does. It does not matter how well our president does. He is not going to fix the fundamental problem that we as humans have, but our true king can. We need to be committed to telling others about him. We need to be committed to telling others about the king that bled for them, the king that died for them, the king that can actually save them. So whether it be politics, whether it be our career, whether it be our success, whether it be our families, what is our allegiance to? What is our allegiance to? Our allegiance should be to King Jesus. Because when we swear our allegiance to any of these other things, listen, they fail to fix us. They fail to satisfy us. 
If we looked at where we spent our time, where we spent our effort, where we spent our conversation, where we spent our, spend our money, what does it say about who your king is? Who would crush the serpent's head? Who would come to remedy mankind's greatest problem? It's the greater Abraham, the greater Moses, the greater king. So what do we do with all this? Listen, as we look at this, here's where, here's where the rubber meets the road, church. We can look at all of this and say, look, God is faithful to keep his promise. So we can be filled with hope today. We can bank on the promises of God because we know he's going to make good on what he says. And so as we prepare to respond to God's word, as we prepare to do this, the one question I have for you this morning is, do you have this hope? Do you have hope? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, listen, Christ offers you a hope better than anything that you're hoping in. Today you can turn from your sin and your brokenness and you can receive forgiveness. You can receive restoration. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you just feel very little hope. You're a Christian and maybe you're struggling. Remember that God has solved your greatest problem. This is something that's so good to remember that in all of our, in all of our striving and all of our brokenness, He has solved our greatest problem. So we're going to be all right. We're going to be all right. We're going to make it through. And listen, maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you're struggling to find hope. Listen, you're going to be all right. He's been making good on His promises ever since the beginning. And He saved you. He's forgiven you. Everything's going to be good. He's got you. Maybe you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you're not really walking with Christ very closely. To you, I would just ask, why would you turn to other things for hope when true hope is right in front of you? Why would you turn to other things and say, satisfy me, fill me, give me hope when the one true hope is right in front of you? So if that's you today, I would encourage you to repent and return to the hope that you had at first. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're like, you know, I, I feel this hope. I, I, I celebrate it. I know that I have it. And I'm walking in this hope. To you, I would say rejoice. Rejoice and share that hope with someone else. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have a greater king than King David, as great as he was. We have a greater prophet who's greater than Moses, as great as Moses was. That we have the fulfillment of Abraham's promise. We have the greater Abraham. Lord, this morning as we've jumped all over the Old Testament looking at your promises and looking at how every promise finds its yes and amen in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to see that you are a faithful God. 
who is worthy of our allegiance and more than that, who's worthy of our trust. Lord, we come confessing that we often hope in so many other things. We hope in things that will satisfy us and Lord, they ultimately fail us. We hope in relationships. We hope in money. We hope in success. We hope in politics. Help us to see, Lord, that the only hope that we have that can truly make good on its promise was born in a manger 2,000 years ago who lived a perfect life, was perfectly faithful to you, Father, and who died a death that he did not deserve but instead died the death that I deserve. Who rose victorious from the grave. Who ascended into heaven. Who will one day, his, your, his feet will touch the earth when he returns again to finish the work that he started. So Lord, I pray that we would hope in him this morning. In Jesus' name.